Welcome to Stuff Mom Never Told You from HowStuffWorks.com. Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm Kristen. And I'm Caroline. And today we're going to do some good old-fashioned myth-busting. I am so excited. I mean, it's it's nice to do, you know, just bust some myths every now and then. I love digging out stereotypes and myths and all sorts of heterosexist whatevers and getting rid of them. Yeah, I mean, and uh, I, I don't feel like I use the word phallocentric all that often. <laughs> Psych, I use it on public transit as often as possible just to make people uncomfortable around me. <laughs> um, actually, I don't. Uh, but this whole lesbian bed death idea and stereotype is as phallocentric as the Washington Monument. Oh, yeah. But apparently so American. (laughs) It is kind of American (laughs) because, in fact, this term lesbian bed death was coined in the book American Couples, Money, Sex and Power, which came out in 1983 Oh. And it was co-authored by sociologists Pepper Schwartz and Philip Bloomstein. And I was surprised that old Pepper, oh. old, old Pepper Mill, came up as the arch enemy to lesbian sexuality because she kind of co-coined this term because it's the same Pepper who we talked about in our singlehood stigma episode. That's what she's from. Yeah, as soon as I saw the name, because my first reaction was like, oh, Pepper, what a great name. And then I was like, wait, I know Pepper. How do I know Pepper? But yeah, she had some good things to say about single ladies, right? Yeah, she's the one who's like single by choice, is A-OK. We need to get rid of the singlehood stigma. And I was looking across the Internet for any Interviews that Pepper has done since 1983 may be reevaluating this whole lesbian bed death thing that, Nothing? that Pepper and, and old Phil kicked off, but I couldn't find anything. Listeners, or Pepper if you're listening. Pepper. If you're aware of, of this, um, I would love to see it because I am really curious to know since this concept has come under such scrutiny since then, whether she still stands by the, I mean, talk about stigma, um, a really stigmatizing term that she came up with. Um, and just a quick side note that whenever I think of Pepper Schwartz, I think of Pepper Saltzman, who is played by Nathan Lane on Modern Family. He's a fabulous friend of Cam and Mitchell. Who always throws very elaborately themed brunches and parties. And, uh, Pepper is just one of my favorite, like, rando characters who comes up on TV. So, it made made me so sad to think ill of a Pepper. (laughs) Because I usually, you know, like, hold, hold Pepper so dearly in my heart. I think my, uh, godmother had a, had a, uh, a Scotty named Pepper. I was about to say, Pepper also sounds like the name that people give small dogs. Schnauzers. <laughs> Little schnauzers. <laughs> um, so, what Pepper and Philip. Oh yeah, I forgot we have an episode to do. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> all, all Pep and Phil. In this massive study that they conducted and published in American Couples, which uh, by 1983 standards, the book kind of went viral, um, in their research and surveys with their study participants, they concluded 
that lesbians have the least amount of sex over time compared to straight and gay couples. And it wasn't only that lesbians were having less self-reported sex than straight and gay couples, but that the drop-off over time was also the steepest. Mm, that, yeah, and so naturally that brings them to the extreme name of lesbian bed death. It's so extreme. So extreme. And I kept accidentally uh, typing... Deathbed? Yes, <laughs> lesbian deathbed over and over again. I was like, whoa, this episode just got so dark. I know what you were about to say, not only because you and I are so connected, but because literally the other day when I came into the office and I was like, what are we what are we talking about this week? And you were like, I'm already reading about lesbian deathbed. And I was like, I'm just not going to, I think I know what she means, but also, and then I just kind of chuckled to myself. Oh, thank you. Thanks for just like <laughs> letting me <laughs> continue I knew, in that vein. I knew what you meant, but also like, oh, that could be sad. We could make, we could make jokes. I don't know. I'm just going to let it, let it, let it ride. So the precise wording of how, Pep and Phil conducted their survey is really important to this conversation because they asked these survey participants, lesbian women, gay men, straight men and women, how often they had had sex with their partners in the past like week, month, year. And of the lesbian couples, when we were looking at, um, how often they'd had sex, you know, in the past week, or if they'd had sex at least once in the past week. Lesbian couples who had been together for less than two years, 76% of them were like, yeah, we've we've had the sex in the past week. And then from two to 10 years together, the percentage drops off to 37. Meanwhile, for married couples, 83% of the people who had been together for two years or less had had sex at least once a week. And 73% of the people who'd been together for two to 10 years had had sex in the past week. And gay men had similar statistics. So you do see from the less than two years to the two to 10 year mark, there is that gap Mm -hmm. of having sex within the past week, last month. And they also found that, you know, lesbians were likelier to say that uh, they and their partners hadn't had had any of the sex in like the past month. Mm. So they're like, something's going on here. Yeah. And it is bed death. Ooh. They didn't want to look at it from like, well, what does it mean when men are involved? What are, what are norms that are dictating these things? What about bisexual or pansexual people? Well, and that's something that's really highlighted in the New York Times book review of, of American couples from 83, um, where the reviewer is like, okay, w- what we've learned from this is that regardless of sexual orientation, men and women have sex in just profoundly, they use the word profound, profoundly different ways. Quote, women, lesbian or straight, do not like to dominate, to be the more powerful partner, to feel superior. They want a balance. They want equality. And then in parentheses, the author goes on to write, so important is a balance of power to lesbians that they're the group whose members are the most likely to have split up to resent being put in a more powerful role. Indeed, they're the group that has sex the least often since a common lament among them was a dislike for being the one who always had to initiate sex. So basically, the conclusion drawn from this is like, 
lesbian bed death exists because women just we don't want to have to initiate anything. But also I love that um some of the fans of our BDSM episodes would probably have a bone to pick with the assertion across the board that women regardless of sexual orientation never want to dominate. Yeah, I'm nodding my head vigorously. I mean there's she is. there's so so much in this one brief paragraph from this book review um because a lot of it is just playing into and reinforcing, of course, binary gender stereotypes, because we have men and women just divided into two groups. And then you have stereotypes of gay men as being super promiscuous, whereas lesbians are sexless because there's not a penis in the room to dominate, to initiate things. I mean, like reading reading this just reminded me of... You know, when you're um, trying to figure out where you and your girlfriend want to go out to dinner or go out for drinks, and it's like, where do you want to go? Oh, I don't know. Where, where do you want to go? Oh, no, I don't, I don't know. Where do you want to go? And you, like, 45 minutes later, you are so hungry, and you end up going to the Weeping. same. You end up just, like, going to McDonald's and saying, screw it. You just described my my relationship with my boyfriend, honestly. Um, yeah, I wasn't sure where that story was going. Well, not not to any restaurant anytime soon. No, that's for sure. That's for sure. Um, but it's I mean, I think that pointing that out, Kristen, is so important, not only to highlight the faults with Pep and Phil's research, but also to point out the faults that could exist when researchers don't excavate their own, not only their own biases, but also just sort of the constraints that are on all of us socially in our days and ages. Um, because if you're not pulling all of those things apart, then you're not going to get a true picture of what's going on with people's sex lives. Well, and another reason why uh, the concept has been criticized is that Schwartz and Bloomstein, a.k.a. Pep and Phil, <laughs> really drew from a small, rather homogenous, very uh, white <laughs> study sample. Yeah. So, also, historically speaking, these kinds of supposed lesbian bed death statistics could almost be considered a product of confirmation bias. Exactly. Yeah. So, Kristen and I were thumbing through uh, the book Human Sexuality and Encyclopedia. Like you do, a little light reading every day before work to really get pumped up to talk about gender and sexuality. And in, in the lesbian section... Uh, I just I love everything I just said. We've got it dog-eared, of course. <laughs> yeah. The whole book is dog-eared every page. Uh, they write, at least as far back as the ancient Hebrews, commentators have assumed two women together could do nothing sexually. Hello, have you people listened to our Boston Marriages episode? Same thing. The assumption that two women living together or coexisting or hanging out, cuddling or whatever... It's never going to be sexual because, you know, A, women are frigid and they're moral, upstanding, virtuous, virgin, virginal angels. But also like, well, there ain't no penis involved. Yeah. I mean, what what can you possibly do? I mean, th- this is even so we're recording this like very soon after uh, we closed out our summer series on romantic comedies. The last episode of which was on uh queer rom-coms and it reminds me this whole thing reminds me of a scene in kissing jessica stein 
where Jessica Stein, who has never had any sexual relations with a woman, is asking her soon-to-be girlfriend, like, so how do we even dot, dot, dot? I mean, it's not... Yeah, and, and we've been thinking this just for like thousands of years. Well, yeah, I mean, there's the episode of Sex in the City where Samantha's dating the female artist, right? Yes. And like, it's the biggest deal to her that, and, and it's normalized in the, uh, narrative. Uh, it's the biggest deal that a penis is not involved. And so the artist woman makes this big show of presenting her with a dildo because like, oh, here it is. Don't worry. Like, I want you to be sexually satisfied. And, and that's a positive thing. Caring about your partner's sexual uh, preferences is always a positive thing. But that just furthers the whole narrative of like, A, straight women are totally stupid <laughs> and ignorant. But B, that like sex can never be satisfying without a penis-shaped thing to go along with it. Yeah, and that the extent of lesbian sexuality is like brushing each other's hair and taking <laughs> long baths. Because literally like that was a scene in that Sex yeah. and the City episode where they take a bath. And I think that's when Samantha, spoiler alert, is like, I can't do this anymore. And this marginalization of female sexuality and lesbian sexuality, queer sexuality, um, is reflected even in legalities around uh, sodomy. So, for instance, women having sex with women was not forbidden under English common law. And as William Eskridge points out in his book, Dishonorable Passions, which is a history of U.S. sodomy laws, if you're looking for some light reading this season, um, he notes that from the 1600s, the American colonies outlawed bestiality and anal sex between women and men and, of course, between two men. But the New Haven colony was the only one to include women having sex with women in its definition of sodomy. And similarly, in the late 19th and early 20th centuries, many states, because of urbanization and concerns about, you know, women's sexuality outside of the home and premarital sex and all of that, many states started to regulate oral sex, but oral sex only centering around penises rather than oral sex regarding vaginas. Is that is that a smooth way to put it? Oral I, sex regarding vaginas? <laughs> Sounds like that like a memo. <laughs> oral sex like you're jotting it down on a notepad. But didn't you send me what did you send me about Thomas Jefferson and like nose piercing? What was that? About so, so I want to go back and verify <laughs> this because it was either in that human sexuality encyclopedia or it was noted in dishonorable passions. But um, in 1776, so this historical snippet I ran across alleges Thomas Jefferson recommended that rather than being executed for sodomy, women caught having sexual relations with other women should simply like have their nose pierced kind of like scarlet letter style. Interesting. So the men were expected to be executed for sodomy in certain cases, but not the women, according to this right snippet. Right. <laughs> Although Eskridge points out um, that there were very few executions that actually took place um, as a result of these sodomy laws. Um, but I mean, the the threatened punishments were still out there. So, I mean, all of that to say that it's never really been seen even legally as as a risk. 
it's not until, as we talk about in the Boston Marriages episode, it's not really until um, the you know 1910s and 20s when we start to get the rise of psychotherapy that people start worrying more about lesbianism. Yes, scary, scary inverted sexuality. Um, but when we do jump forward back to the 1980s and beyond, we start to see more and more people being like, are these lines drawn in the sand when it comes to libido, sex drive, sexuality? Are these entirely accurate? Yeah, I mean, and this amid all of the the U-Haul jokes and Beth dead panic and ideas about, uh, you know, lesbians having like very boring sex lives once they couple up. Uh, yeah. the, the U-Haul joke being like, what does a lesbian bring to the second date? I think I'm botching this. Um, that's not part of the joke. I actually think I'm botching <laughs> this joke. Um, but the answer is a U-Haul because they're going to like move in together immediately and then sleep in their <laughs> their deathbed. Yeah, I mean, because we all know that lesbians do practice a just a, a lesbian form of bundling. You know, they've they've got the lesbian bundling board between them. They're sleeping in their lesbian bundling sacks. So no lesbian sex is happening. Yeah. Why, why would they want to do that? Did I say lesbian enough? Well, and speaking of the repetition of lesbians, though, <laughs> I mean, the, the very concept of lesbian bed death is also a very narrow concept of sexuality in that women who have sexual relationships or just relationships with other women are necessarily lesbian. That there's not like fluidity happening. There's bisexual erasure going on, of course. Um, all sorts of things. So many things. But thankfully, we have more recent research. Oh, good. That's like, okay, you know what? We need to, we need to do some digging here. So in 2014, uh, there was a study published in the Journal of Sex Research titled Beyond Lesbian Bed Death, Enhancing Our Understanding of the Sexuality of Sexual Minority Women. And this is one of several, several studies. And I mean, if you listen to Sminty, you know this. This is one of several studies to a question, the penis-centric, penetration-centric view of what is sexual intercourse. Yeah, because the study authors had a hunch that in that 1983 survey asking people like when was the last time you had sex, you immediately think of that intercourse centric definition of it. Mm-hmm. So, they were like, well, what if we take surveys of both genital and non-genital contact? Because there are all sorts of definitions of sex and satisfying sexual expressions Mm -hmm. that do not necessarily include any form of penetration. That's right. Yes. And so it is possible, ladies and gentlemen, that not only Pep and Phil's study, but so many past studies of sexuality and sex erased huge parts of the population and a huge number of sexual activities because we are so stuck on this idea of penetration or genital to genital contact in general. General genital to genital contact. Right. I had to pause and make sure that I said all of that right. (laughs) That and oral sex regarding vaginas. I mean, we're just like two (laughs) 
smooth talking gal. Okay, no one, no one can ever accuse us though of being like overly sexual on this <laughs> podcast because we're clearly very still like, I'm gonna write a memo about sex. Oh, well, we're just trying to choose our words carefully, uh, for a general audience. Um, but speaking of words, I, speaking of words, I, how, I think that might be the worst transition I've ever made. Um, <laughs> but I learned two new technical terms thanks to this beyond bed death study, which is fraudage and tribidism. And fraudage, is, as far as I could tell, just has to do with frontal contact, kissing, mm-hmm. cuddling, hugging. But tribidism is a fancy term for what, Caroline? For scissoring. I had to look it up, too. I was like, tribe, is that supposed to be tribalism? Is there some weird, like, what's going on? And I had to Google it because I can admit my own straight person ignorance. I had no idea. Yeah. Uh, so we have fraudage and tribidism. Um, also, shout out to any asexuals listening to this as well, because there is satisfaction that that community derives, obviously, from from not having what we would think of as this, you know, the phallocentric, heterosexist, cis-centric concept of what sex equals. God, I don't know if I could say that five times fast. I certainly can't. I'm surprised <laughs> that it all came. surprised I got it out that one time. Yeah, but so basically this study, the Beyond Bed Death study, which should be like a store like Bed Bath & Beyond. <laughs> Next door is Beyond Bed Death. <laughs> Bed Bath & Beyond Bed Death. Wow. Oh, wait, it's even better to wow. combine it. Um, I love us. Um, so basically these researchers happily found that once you do broaden all of those categories, once you remove all of those restrictions in terms of sexuality and, and all of that stuff, you find that, or they found that in their study, most of their participants did engage in non-genital sexual contact at least once a day and genital contact one to three times a week. And only 11% of the women who were in relationships 10 years plus had no genital contact in the past month, which is about the same for women in opposite sex relationships of the same length. Yeah, and they found that uh, controlling for other factors, relationship length only accounted for 7% of the variability or the chance that you had or had not had any kind of intimate contact um, in a recent period of time, which, again, is not far off at all from similar statistics from opposite-sex relationships. Rather, they found frequency of genital contact was a stronger determinant of relationship satisfaction than non-genital contact. Not terribly surprising. Um, but as the study authors pointed out, that challenges the idea or stereotype of lesbians as only wanting that emotional bond just to talk throughout the night and <laughs> bundling, essentially, <laughs> getting in your bundle bag and gabbing till the sun comes up. Les bundles. <laughs> Liz. I think that you could probably get lesbian bundle bags at uh, Bed Bath and Beyond Bed Death. <laughs> I love this so much. Um, yeah, but here's the thing. So, you know, all of these studies that we cited earlier, like the, the 1980 study in particular, looked at frequency as a determinant of satisfying sex lives. Like, if you're not having sex X number of times a week, then uh-oh, your bed is dead or whatever. Um, but it turns out that there's other factors, and that is 
quality. So quality versus quantity and, and length of time. And what I'm getting at, these study authors in the 2014 study described uh, sexual activity as quote-unquote leisurely and lasting 57 minutes on average. Another study, uh, 10% of the women in that study reported it lasting about two hours. And I don't mean to sound like a prude or an old or someone who is not committed to my loving boyfriend, but an hour? I got things to do. Two hours? Like, I'm going to need to take a bathroom break. Two hours, that's the movie and the previews. <laughs> you know? Um, so we're going to dig more into this quality versus quantity issue when we come right back from a quick break. So we have some more studies that we want to highlight. But first, I wanted to toss out a quote that was cited in a piece over the Daily Dot, um, which was, you know, myth busting the concept of lesbian bed death. And they cited um, something that sex therapist Suzanne Iacenda wrote in a 2001 article uh, in which she said, it's safe to say that if sex research questions focus on longevity instead of the number of sexual acts, Lesbians would be the winners. <laughs> I picture them on a tr- on a pedestal with a trophy. Yeah. Although really, does it have to be a competition? That's what I'm saying. Yeah. It shouldn't be. That's absolutely what I thought as well. This is not a thing of winners and losers. If you're having sex that feels good and that you like, and it's the frequency that's pleasing and the length that's pleasing, uh, then we're all winners. Yeah. And we all we all will win a giant clitoris shaped. Trophy made by clitoracy artist Sophia Wallace. Although I have a feeling that like men who have are having sex with men might oh, not want that. Sorry, sorry. Yeah, I just got really caught up in our like lesbian bundling concept. Uh, Maybe we just all win pizza. Yeah. Okay. There you go. Take a lactate. I'll or, be fine. Or a giant, you know, winner's cup filled with pizza rolls. Oh. Yeah. I'm hungry. I am so hungry. <laughs> um, but it absolutely has been necessary for researchers to highlight how, you know, this, this frequency versus longevity issue, um, is pertinent to putting the bed death idea to bed and death. <laughs> so there was a, another study that came out in 2014 in the Journal of Sexual Medicine. Which went viral because it found that single lesbian identified women orgasmed more often during sexual encounters compared to single straight identified women. And everyone was like, whoa. Yeah, well, I mean, a lot of this is physical. A lot of it's emotional and mental because... With women, if women are having sex with women and we find that on average they're taking like almost an hour to do it, that's a lot of built in foreplay time. Well, and speaking of foreplay, here are a couple of factors that researchers think contribute to the higher rate of orgasms. And I do want to note that like a lot of the um, coverage of this study said, you know, lesbians have more orgasms as if it's like. You know, just like by sheer number, like the gross number of orgasms <laughs> is larger for women having sexual relations with women versus women having sexual relations with men um, or 
you know, penises and vaginas interacting. <laughs> like at a party yeah. around the hors d'oeuvre table. Exactly. <laughs> um, but it's worth noting that they're talking about like orgasms per sexual encounter, which I, to me is a notable like nuance to this because it's like, the sheer frequency of sexual encounters might be lower, but it's like getting more bang for your buck, kind of. And one factor to that is that research finds that women in same-sex relationships are way likelier to engage in oral sex. Also, we've got some neurology happening. Um, in 2013, neurologist Sari Van Anders presented some research to the Society for Scientific Study of Sex. They're like annual conference. Their acronym is she went to this conference. Um, I'm sure that's so fun to hear in, in earbuds. Sorry. Um, Sorry. But Van Anders found that women expect to both give and receive orgasms when they're having sex with other women. Like almost like it's a given. Like it's, it's going to happen. Yeah. Like that's what you do. Whereas women having sex with men who tend to rely a lot on vaginal intercourse did not expect to receive an orgasm. <laughs> and it makes me think of like, you know, that book, The Secret that Oprah made so popular. It's like, are, is it because we're not manifesting our orgasms? Do we need to make a, a vision board for the kind of like sexual pleasure we want to have? Well, I mean, this is like the stuff we discussed in our last episode when it comes to libido and communication. Like no matter who you are, or what your sexual preferences are, like when you communicate with your partner or partners, plural, that you want an orgasm or don't, I mean, I don't, whatever, um, then you can all work toward a common goal. I mean, like, again, not to be TMI, but like my boyfriend and I view sex that way too. Like everybody's going to have a good time. Um, and so we work toward that, you know, because I don't think it's fair otherwise. And since 2014 was apparently just like the year of <laughs> research about um same-sex female sexuality. Karen Blair, who's done a lot of uh, work in this area, published what is considered like the first study comparing sexual frequency and duration of same-sex female and same-sex male relationships and opposite-sex relationships. So essentially she took the same groups of people that old Pep and Phil were looking at in 1983, and she wanted to look more at uh, frequency and duration. Mm -hmm. And again, she found that women having sex with women have lower sexual frequency overall, but compared to averages between eight to 15 minutes for straight sex, 30 minutes was the average starting point for lesbian couples. And I don't have the average number for, uh, for gay men's sexy times too, but I know that of those, like, lesbians were having the longest sex of everyone. But there was no significant difference among those groups in terms of relationship satisfaction. Not to mention, everyone was like, you know what, yeah, we go through dry spells from time yeah. to time. Because we do. Most mm -hmm. people do. Some people don't. Most people do. Everybody's different. Everyone's different. Um, and the big conclusion that Blair drew from this was that our focus on how often are you having sex is leaving out the quality of what's happening. And not to say that like 
time equals quality. But um, we need to, in the same way that we need to broaden our definition of what sex is and what satisfaction is, mm-hmm. we need to broaden our definition of what a healthy sex life is. Sure. And nobody wants to get caught up in obligation sex. I mean, speaking of dry spells, sure, everybody goes through them. And, you know, your sex drive is not always going to be equal to your partner's. I don't think that's news to anyone. But, yeah, I I like shifting the focus to quality versus quantity and really opening up those channels of communication about what is satisfying. I wonder if there are any studies on the kind of maintenance sex that you're talking about. Like with a wrench? (laughs) That you got at Bed Bath and Beyond Bed Death. Yeah. Um, no, the, the, the idea of kind of the not so much obligation sex, it's more obligation to the relationship that you know you need to have sex. Yeah. And I mean, I, I don't think those things are mutually exclusive. I think that you can absolutely have maintenance sex, as you put it, you know, bring on, bring on the tool belt and, but be in in good communication with each other that like we know that we're on the same page in terms of wanting to maintain sex as an important part of our relationship. So it doesn't have to be a downer. It doesn't have to be obligation sex. It could be like we just know that doing this is an important part of maintenance. Yeah. Yeah. Just like eating your vegetables. <laughs> I love a good roasted broccoli. That's what she said. <laughs> what does it even mean? And one term that was introduced in this whole conversation about, uh, you know, moving away from that more phallocentric and cis-centric idea of what sex is, is that we might be better off if we adopt a concept of optimal sexuality, which is more individually tailored than one size fits all. Right. Being open to doing what feels good and what feels right. For you and your partner. Yeah. Rather than like holding yourself to a single standard. Yeah. Which is so unrealistic and it does a disservice to everyone. This is not just an issue of queer women, but I mean, it's potentially liberating for, for all of us, regardless of like what sexual orientation you might be. Um, so <laughs> I just gotta say, I was really happy to myth bust this whole thing. Yes. Me too. But one thing I, I'm curious to hear from listeners is whether pop culture reinforces this idea. Um, this was something I had asked you about because it comes up in the kids are all right. Um, it definitely comes up between the couple, uh, Betty and Tina or Bet and Tina, excuse me, on the L word. Um, I see it somewhat in uh, the character of Harper on Jessica Jones. She's the, <laughs> she was in the Matrix. She was what's her name in the Matrix, and she's the lawyer. Oh yeah, yeah. Who is having an affair, like a hot and heavy affair? But there's the implication of bed death with her long term partner. Well, I'm not sure. I see what you mean. I'm not an expert by any stretch of the imagination. But when we're talking about straight couples and bed death, period, in general, like the show that makes me cringe is Togetherness. On HBO, uh, one of the couples on the show, like, has massive issues around sex and communication and their new parents and the whole nine yards. And it's painful to watch. The it, There's a bunch of real talk in that show. Well, I was about to say, I mean, I think it's so painful um, 
to watch because there is a lot of truth in that dynamic and the awkwardness of it. Yeah. Um, and who was it? I think it was Hannah Rosen over at Slate interviewed um, Mark Duplass because mm-hmm. uh, it's produced by the Duplass brothers. Um, and he got very transparent um, to cite another show where I think <laughs> lesbian bed death comes up a little bit. Um, but he was very transparent about issues that both he and his brother have dealt with in their own marriages, especially post kids. Yeah. And watching because he was, yeah, he was talking a lot too about like just watching their friend group in general as people started to have kids. And if people weren't communicating well, um, the terrible stuff that they were going through where sex ends up not only feeling like a chore or an obligation, but it starts to be weaponized. Like your attitudes around sex become really prickly and dangerous. And it becomes not a thing of like, hey, let's just talk about sex and what feels good. And let's experiment to like, isn't that a song? Yeah. Yes, it's my new, my band is... Let's talk about sex, baby. Oh, oh, sure. Yeah, that too. I guess my band can't put it out. Um, Copyright infringement. Dang it. That was the name of it. Um, Copyright infringement? Yeah, my band. But yeah, just how scary sex can become. And I, I don't mean like necessarily the act of doing it, but even like approaching sex, thinking about it, fearing it, treating it as this weight on your relationship. And that just is the worst. Because there is a lot of pressure. I think regardless of your sexual orientation, there is, and, and regardless of your gender identity, mm-hmm. there is pressure because we have so long had this single standard of, how often healthy long-term couples should be having sex. Mm-hmm. And if life gets in the way and if stressful times happen, you know, and suddenly you find that, oh, you haven't like done it in a while. You start thinking about all of the things that you've heard about it. Yeah. You know, I, I clearly remember the first time watching sex in the city, not to keep referencing it this episode, but when Carrie and Samantha are talking about how, you know, sex is the barometer of a healthy relationship oh, and God. immediately thinking about like my own boyfriend at the time and being like, oh, no. And it's stuck in my head for so long. Um, and I also want to ask listeners whether we should come back and do an episode on sexless relationships and marriages and the whole roommate syndrome issue. Because this is something that comes up not just in marriage, but also just straight up like cohabitation. Yeah. And the dynamic changes. Yeah, that's a huge fear. And and even just fearing the roommate syndrome is a weight and a pressure that makes you potentially overthink what's happening in your own relationship. But something that might be a little bit of a comfort and just a healthy reminder to Women especially listening, women or people who are in sexual relationships with women is to keep in mind that there is simply a tidal wave of things that can sway our sexual desire and responsiveness in the moment and over time, including but not limited to things like birth control, your medications, antidepressants, uh, polycystic ovarian syndrome, endometriosis, vaginismus and vulvodynia, those other conditions that can cause painful intercourse, even just our menstrual cycles and menopause, stress, pregnancy and childbirth, and, of course, just feeling panicked that your relationship might descend into a sexless quagmire of angst. I mean, that's... (laughs) 
it's, it doesn't exactly prime you for a romantic evening. Yeah, so perhaps we could be better served to remember that sexualities, sexual preferences, and libidos are different, not better or worse. Different, not better or worse. And also that maybe, like we've been saying, we should focus more on quality over quantity and having fun and having good open communication rather than like, today's Tuesday, which means I've got to take out the trash, I've got to pick up the dog, and oh yeah, we've got to like do it at some point. Have some maintenance sex. Um, I do especially want to hear from queer women listening ab- about whether the lesbian bed death stereotype is something that is pervasive, like just within your in-group culture, you know, if it's just a joke or if it is something that kind of gets in your head because stereotypes get in our heads. Oh, yeah. Big time. Yep. Um, so I'm very much looking forward to hearing from all of you about this issue. Momstuff at HowStuffWorks.com is our email address. You can also tweet us at MomStuffPodcast or message us on Facebook And we've got a couple of messages to share with you right now. All right. I have a letter here from Scottney in response to our Black Romantic Comedies episode. She says, I just listened to the last rom-com installment and I loved it. I can't tell you how annoying it is when my quote-unquote mainstream friends or coworkers expect me to have seen all the quote classic rom-coms or other movies for that matter, but have no idea what, what I'm talking about when I quote or reference movies like Best Man or Brown Sugar, which I think Caroline accidentally called Black Sugar in the episode. Haha. <laughs> Ugh. Sorry. Uh, my brain, you know, hey. Um, and Scottney writes, a couple of thoughts. One, this is just a theory, but I think another reason, quote, black movies struggle to be marketed as mainstream is because many of them, particularly in recent years, a la Tyler Perry or Steve Harvey, uh, there are very strong Christian themes, which leads to some, at times, problematic gender roles. For many black Americans, religion is very important, so it shows up a lot in black culture media, which you don't always see in mainstream, a.k.a. white rom-coms. As a black atheist, this can be really frustrating, but there have been and continue to be some rom-coms or just roms that are a little more secular with some more complex gender roles, especially in the indie world. And two... In terms of interracial couples, which I strongly vote for an episode on in general, if you haven't done one already, I wanted to point out two awesome examples on the small screen. The leads are white, of course, but on both Supergirl and The Flash, the romantic interests in the will-they-won't-they relationship, who are normally depicted as white in the comics, are both black. Candace Patton on The Flash plays Iris West, and the delectable Makad Brooks as James Olsen on the super-fun, girl-power, feminist-themed, action-packed Supergirl. Being biracial myself with a white husband, it is super exciting to see these relationships depicted in popular media, and I hope to see more. I would also love to see rom-coms with people of all colors, and I'd like to think as more people of color are becoming active in the film industry, we will. Thanks for the awesomeness you continue to bring to the podcast world. Oh, and P.S., you asked about Denzel and rom-coms, and he did Mississippi Masala, which is a pretty cute one. Well, thanks, Scottney. So I've got a letter here from... Jennifer, subject line, OMG, I'm a racist movie watcher. Jennifer writes, love me a rom-com. Netflix knows this and often recommends black rom-coms. I never watch them. I never considered this bias until now, and I'm so mad and disappointed in myself for falling into this Hollywood trap. If I would have stopped to think about these movies, I most definitely would have decided that they do, in fact, speak to me. Love is love, after all. 
But the sad thing is that I didn't even spend 15 seconds thinking about them. They were immediately dismissed. I am determined to right this racist wrong, and on your advice, have added two movies to my must-see list: Love and Basketball, and Something New. I can't wait to see them. Thank you for the eye-opening podcast. I was upset to realize that even being a sweet liberal Canadian like me has some racist tendencies, and I'm determined to beat that out of myself, Netflix binge style. Well, thank you so much, Jen.、Um, and I would also recommend you watching Love Jones. The full movie is on YouTube. I watched it; it's fantastic. So, listeners, let us know all of your thoughts. Mom stuff at howstuffworks dot com is our email address, and for links to all of our social media as well as all of our blogs, videos, and podcasts with our sources, so you can learn more about sexuality. Head on over to stuffmomnevertoldyou dot com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit howstuffworks.com. 